Years ago, I ran across something that is incredibly appropriate to today's message and actually uh, appropriate to next week's communion celebration, which we'll share, Lord willing. The most joyful Lord's Supper Sam James ever experienced was served in silence on a rusted table in a park. Nearly 15 years after South Vietnam's fall to communism drove James and other missionaries out, he returned for a brief visit in 1989, same year that that song was written. He sent a message to the Vietnamese Christian friends there that he was coming, but doubted that he would see any of them. But most had suffered years of prison and re-education camps and persecution for following Christ. And as he emerged from his hotel in Ho Chi Minh City, formerly Saigon, one morning, uh, someone brushed by and pressed a message into his hand. The message said this, meet us at the park at two o'clock. So when he arrived at the park, a man led him through a jungle of overgrown weeds to a tiny little clearing. Seven of his former seminary students waited there, seated around an old wrought iron table. They were so gaunt and so frail that he barely recognized them at first. They embraced him with tears and laughter and spoke of the trials that they had faced under communism. And one of them reached into a paper bag and pulled out an aluminum tray and set it on the table, James recalls. Another pulled out a loaf of French bread and set it on the tray. Another had a little bunch of grapes. One of them broke the bread and began to pass it around. We each took a grape. Nobody said it was the Lord's Supper, but we knew what it was. James remembers something else about these men that years earlier, when they first arrived at the Baptist seminary in Saigon asking to study the Bible, they were rowdy, ragged country folk, nothing like the sophisticated students from the city. James never thought they'd pass the first class, much less endure years of suffering for Christ. And yet they're the ones, he said, who gathered in that little clearing 14 years later to serve the Lord's Supper to me, their teacher. It just shows how God's transforming power can take anybody, anybody, and make us into what he wants us to be. James Hart remains in Vietnam, and he continues to share the gospel with Vietnamese around the world. At least he did at the time of this writing. The evacuation of missionaries in 1975 as North Vietnamese tanks rolled toward Saigon emotionally devastated James and others who experienced it. But the persecution of Christians that followed the communist takeover has purified the church. He believes. And those who endured it have become absolutely fearless in their commitment. Now, it's good to attend church services, Bible study groups, and to be spiritually nourished and equipped by attending Christian conferences, and to be involved in small group gatherings, to be fed and encouraged in our faith. It's great to have all these opportunities to sit and to soak up the truth of God's word like a sponge, but we should also realize this, in light of what I just read to you, that sponges work best when they're squeezed. Right? And so before I get too far into this message this morning, I must make a confession to all of you. 
I've never felt more unqualified, at least by experience, to preach a sermon like today's. Know that at the beginning. Yet there's probably no group of people more in need of hearing this talk than the contemporary North American church of which we are all a part. Disturbing awareness washes over me whenever I prepare sermons like these. I'm reminded of the fact that I type these thoughts on a computer located in a comfortable, warm, and well-lit office. On my desk is a hot cup of coffee. Always. There's carpeting on the floor, a plethora of Christian books on the shelves available to me whenever I so choose to pick them up or on my device or on my computer, personal notes and pictures of my family dotting all the brightly painted walls and counters surrounding me. The window just three feet away this week revealed brilliant fall colors just starting to turn. As I looked out the window last week, I had to admit that I have experienced very little of what Jesus is talking about in today's text. And probably you haven't either. I'd like you to turn to Matthew 10 if you're not already there and pick it up in verse 16 and following. Follow with me as I read down to verse 23. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you'll be even brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, a father his child, Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now what most of us know about severe Christian persecution is knowledge largely acquired from books and videos. Is that right? Would you agree with that? Largely. Church history documents in much detail of what Jesus refers to here, but in the comfortable complacency of these padded and protected seats, there's a vastly different story, which is all the more reason Jesus' words should have an impact on us. Because just as the disciples had not yet experienced the horrors of persecution in the name of Christ, because they hadn't experienced it yet, by and large, neither have we. Yet as Jesus warned them to beware, so today I'm saying he's warning us as well. Persecution for our faith is nothing to hope for, but it is something everyone should prepare for, especially these days because it will inevitably happen in one form or another if we live for Christ. Paul did not soften his words when he, writing to his young pastoral protege, Timothy, he said with flat-out candor, and I quote, 1 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, and indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what's it say? 
will be persecuted. The persecution of the saints is par for the course, but it also promotes the progress of the church. Can I say that again? The persecution of Christians is par for the course, but it also promotes the progress of the church. I have in my hand this morning a stone paperweight that normally rests on the shelf in my office, and inscribed upon this stone are these words, which come from Albert Einstein, of all people, says, in the middle of difficulty lies opportunity. That's a great reminder of what Jesus is telling us here in Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 to 23. Vance Havner hit it dead center when he convincingly preached years ago, the gospel thrives on persecution. It makes better headway against a world that fights against it than against a world that trifles with it. But bitter hostility is better than half-hearted endorsement. You believe that to be true? I know you're hesitant. But Jesus wasn't joking around, nor was he exaggerating here. He was shooting straight with us. When you and I live in a manner that is contrary to the system of the world all around us, when we consistently stand firm for the truth, when all around us things are going in the exact opposite direction that Jesus is going in, there will eventually be a price to pay. There will be. False religion will hate you. The government will suspect you. Your closest friends and family members may disown you. And society will ridicule you. In effect, true followers of Christ will be despised by every sector of humanity. Now, here's a disclaimer. If you're rolling your eyes right now at me and what you're hearing, it simply proves that you and I have been raised in a culture where Christianity has been half-heartedly endorsed or wholeheartedly dismissed. Okay? My friends, the heat is on. The heat is on. But remember this, throughout the history of God's people, persecution of believers follows a great principle of thermodynamics, right? The greater the heat, the greater the expansion. Exodus chapter 1, verse 12 is proof positive of this. You remember the Jews were afflicted by the Egyptians, right? What's it say in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 12? It says, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. Acts chapter 8 in the New Testament, verse 1 and verse 4. The word states, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, meaning Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Therefore, what happened? Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. I wonder if you ever heard the story of the starfish. Did you know that if one of the arms of a starfish is severed, a new one will grow back in its place? In fact, if you can cut up a starfish and, and any piece that contains a part of the central disc will develop into a new starfish. So I read once that some oyster fishermen found this fact out the hard way, much to their dismay when their oyster beds became infested with starfish, 
The fishermen, in their effort to take care of the problem on their own, once for all, cut up all the starfish that they caught and tossed them back into the water. <laughs> Rather than destroying them, they were actually helping them multiply. That's a great picture of the miraculous growth of the Christian church down through the centuries, isn't it? Throughout history, since the resurrection of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Christians have been hated, they've been persecuted and violently opposed in many nations. However, persecution did not destroy Christianity, did it? Even under the most dire circumstances, it has not only survived, but it has thrived. In fact, the persecution of the early church helped spread the gospel to other nations. As Christians moved to the remotest parts of the earth, as Jesus said we should do, in order to escape cruel harassment and death at the hands of their persecutors. Wherever they went, they preached the marvelous good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning work at Calvary. And many more believed. Amen? So as the second century church father, Tertullian, once stated, and you've heard this, the blood of the martyrs, finish it, is the seed of the church. As followers of Christ, we should not be surprised. In fact, we should actually expect persecution. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said it. As, as Jesus instructed the disciples regarding their mission, he was outlining these divine principles that apply to ministry in every age. In fact, Jesus' words have a telescopic effect History confirms that he was not limiting his revelation to this particular mission of the 12. He was including the entire future of the church until he comes again. And as such, this text becomes irrefutably pertinent to us today. That is especially seen in the first words of verse 17, where we'll begin. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts. And literally, when Jesus says, beware of the men, is what he said. The definite article is there, referring to the wolves that he spoke of in verse 16. Pay attention to them. Be on your guard against them. Jesus is arming us with knowledge. He's saying, again, he's not trying to frighten us off. He's telling us what we can expect. He's preparing his disciples. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.12 that ultimately our struggle is against who? Satan, right? It's against Satan and his demonic forces. But guess who Satan and his demonic forces use? People. They use people. And it is through human beings that Satan opposes and persecutes Christ's church. Men and women are the ones who insult and fight against and torture and kill Christians, right? It's other people that do that. So Jesus says, beware. Beware. We are to be on the alert like serpents, never blinking our eyes or dropping our guard, as we talked about last week. So from where will these attacks come? Well, let me just say this. They're going to come from everywhere imaginable, okay? Even from places that you and I would never even expect or dream of. First of all, it'll come from religion. It'll come from religion, verse 17. But beware of the men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Let's just stop right there. Of all the places you wouldn't expect persecution to come from against Christ, this is the first one that Jesus targets. 
Matthew 7, verse 15 says, beware of the false prophets. Matthew 16, verse 6 says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, and the Sadducees, which is materialism. These are all religious groups. Luke 20, 46 says, beware of the scribes, because they had religious pride. And in Acts chapter 20 and verses 28 through 30, which I read to you last week, Paul says, beware of professing Christians among yourselves who are not really in me. Jesus said, they'll betray you, they'll deliver you up to the courts. And the word courts in the Greek, it's the word for Sanhedrin. Sound familiar to you? The Sanhedrin was the religious ruling authority in Israel at the time. He says they'll whip you and they'll beat you in their synagogues. They're going to do it in church. Kind of. Synagogue's not really church, but kind of. Throughout history, church history, it is most often religionists that have persecuted true Christianity before the secular government started doing it. It was the Jewish religion that sought to kill Christ long before the Romans ever got involved. Is that right? In fact, it was a Roman prefect or procurator Pilate who repeatedly proclaimed on at least three different occasions, I find no guilt in this man. Nothing worthy of death. That's John 18, 38. John chapter 19 and verses 4 and verse 6, three times, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, right? The apostles suffered the same afflictions as they spread the good news of Christ throughout the empire. Let's do a little bit of a smattering of this. In Acts chapter 4, if you're following along, Acts chapter 4 and verses 1 to 3. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Who was upset here? Religion. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Chapter 5. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up. The high priest rose up along with his, all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. Skip down to verse 40. Um, Sanhedrin met, Gamaliel gives them counsel. And in verse 40 says, they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They tried to shut him down. All they did was just stir them up. Acts Again, chapter 22. Chapter 22, in verse 30. 
But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. So now this is Paul, and again, the religious leaders are persecuting him. Chapter 23, verse 9. There occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began argue heatedly, to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. You know what's happening here? The government is actually saving the Christian from the religionists. Verse 27. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up and rescued them with the troops, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. I mean, we could go on. Acts chapter 25 also talks about it in verses 23 to 25. See, initially, it was the religious leaders who took them to task. And until the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, almost all persecution against Christians was by the Jews. Okay? After that time, however, Jewish persecution of Christians virtually ceased. Jesus said that Christians would undergo the persecution of religious leaders who are entrenched in false religious systems. History has played that out. Many true believers have been martyred for confronting the hierarchy, empty traditions, and false religious doctrines of their day. Just to name one, Martin Luther. It still happens today. As William Barclay wrote, it has often been true that the man with the message from God has had to undergo the hatred and the enmity of a fossilized orthodoxy. Unquote. But it's not only going to come from religion, Jesus said. Look at verse 18 in Matthew 10. It will come from the government as well, and it will come from the state. Verse 18, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Government takes over where religious persecution leads off. But why in the world should that take place? If Christians operated as Jesus did, in love, with integrity, submissively, and morally, why would the government be in opposition to them, do you suppose? Well, back in Paul's day, in the Roman days, in the early Christians' days, they had what they considered to be very good reasons. Watch the subtle shift here. Watch how different this was in the government than it is kind of today. Here are a few things the early Christians were accused of. Cannibalism. The Roman world didn't understand communion. When they heard about Christians eating the body and drinking the blood of the Lord, they assumed the worst. Fortunately, the charge didn't last very long. Number two, gross immorality and incest. The love feasts of the early Christians were grossly misunderstood. Believers professed love for one another and called each other brother and sister. And the pagans assumed that this referred to lust and immorality. Number three, revolution. 
Because the preaching of, of the coming of the end of the world and Christ's return to establish his kingdom, it scared the government that there was going to be a, an uprising and a revolution. And number four, disruption of business, okay? This was true in a sense. The conversion of many former pagans closed up many businesses dealing with the worship of false gods. And you can see that in Acts chapter 19 and verse 21, if you note. Number five, tampering with family relationships. Oh, that's a big one. When people became Christians, their new spiritual family became their deepest commitment. And when conflict arose, their loyalty was to their Christian family, not to their natural family. And then the Roman charged Christians with the Romans charged Christians with atheism, because to the Romans, Christians were considered to be atheists. Believe that? Because they refused to honor the Roman gods because they had one God who was also invisible, they were accused of being the atheists. And then number seven, lack of patriotism. Because there was no separation of church and state and Rome's festivals were religious, Christians who refused to participate in these events were considered disloyal. Yet they affirmed their loyalty to government. They prayed for the emperor. And they lived exemplary lives as citizens in the community. And yet the government still persecuted them. So there were many other accusations leveled at Christians in the early days, but the fact is that government persecuted and still persecutes Christians for one real reason, right? Because although government was ordained by God, it is manipulated by Satan. Okay? Although government is ordained by God, it is also manipulated by Satan. And when people turn to Christ and draw the line on corruption and begin to speak out about it concerning unrighteous laws and political practices, the government will seek to destroy their voice. Freedoms will be taken away and hostility toward Christ and his people will become rampant from the top down. Tell me that's not happening today. And we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said it would happen. He warned us. What's important is that we understand that as we suffer persecution, it must not be for any other reason than that we are standing up for the truth. Amen? That's, that's the only reason. The scripture says, Jesus' words here um, in Matthew 10, for my sake, in verse 18, are very, very, Crucial to understand. Notice that the words refer to Christians brought before the authorities for the sake of Jesus, not because they have committed crimes worthy of punishment. Okay? That's a critical element to understand. Don't claim that you were overlooked for a promotion on your job because you are a Christian when the truth is you're a terrible worker. Don't claim that your friends have disowned you because of your faith when all you do is cut them down, treat them with no respect, and stand aloof from them. Right? Don't claim that a former minister who killed a doctor in a bulletproof vest outside a Pensacola, Florida abortion clinic years ago in 2003 was sent to prison because of his Christian beliefs. He was put in prison because he was a murderer. The Apostle Peter's clear and concise wording here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. 
Listen closely. Quote, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of God and glory rests on you. But be sure of this, that none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. First Peter, in chapter two, it's good to know these verses. I hope you do. Verse 12. 1 Peter 2, 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, Peter writes, so that in the thing in which they slander you as, an, as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And then in verse th uh, chapter three, in verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation, he says, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than suffer for what is wrong, doing what is wrong. Jesus said that that kind of persecution will result in our lives becoming a testimony, a living declaration, a witness of the gospel of truth to those all around us. So Jesus said, beware of the attacks they will come to anyone who lives according to the truth, but don't despair. Instead, he said, bank on God's assistance. Bank on God's assistance. That's verses 19 and 20 in Matthew 10. Look at this. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you're to say. For it's not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. But when they deliver you up, notice that, but when they deliver you up. Not if, but when, because it's only a matter of time, but when it happens, don't be anxious about it, Jesus said. Don't worry, easier said than done, right? Well, actually, when you get right down to it, when you get into a pressing situation, God always comes through if you let him. Always. According to this, He's taken everything off our shoulders. In other words, if you ever find yourself in the heat of being persecuted for following Christ, in truth, the word of God says, don't worry about your message. That's what verse 19 says. Don't worry about your message. Don't worry about how you'll say it or what you'll say. He'll take care of that. Last week, we looked at Moses' protests in Exodus chapter four. Remember that? 
didn't want to do what God was calling him to do when he was sent to confront the highest authority in Egypt. Moses said, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? He said, now then go and I, I will be your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Now, Jesus is implying the same exact thing here. Don't worry about the how. Don't worry about the what. Don't worry about the message. If you're doing your due diligence and, doing, and, and being saturated with the word and through prayer, and you've got a great relationship with Christ, I guarantee you when you think you're going to be tongue-tied before somebody who's persecuting you, the Holy Spirit will start to kick in and operate in you, and you won't believe what will come out of your mouth because it's already in your heart, right? So don't worry about your message. And number two, don't worry about the means. That's in verse 20. For it shall be given you. Have you ever been astounded by the things that have come out of your own mouth in certain situations? Or people's mouths when they're put under pressure for their faith? Well, we really shouldn't be because Jesus explained it right here in the text. What astounds me more is what doesn't come out of people's mouths in order to avoid the pressure. And I'm as guilty as you are. A lot of us have never been under the heat of heavy persecution, have we? But most of us have tasted it in subtle forms, haven't we? Our responsibility to stand firm for the truth is no less important in those situations than if we're being threatened with bodily harm. Many of you moms and dads out there will be face to face with this in just a couple of weeks. You're probably not making the application, but this is one of my pet peeves. You can dismiss me if you want to. How are you gonna deal with the upcoming celebration of Halloween? How will you help your kids deal with it as Christians? What will you teach them about it? Will you choose not to address it with them and leave them to the pressure of their peers? Or will you, you yourself cave into the pressure? Will you teach them to uphold the truth of Jesus Christ? Do you think that Jesus' parents would have taken Jesus as a child out to go trick-or-treating on Satan's holiday? I know, I'm getting off on a tangent here. But <laughs> hey, read Ephesians chapter 6. Our struggle's not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and the powers and the world forces of this darkness. What do you think Jesus would have you do? Have you even thought about that? Will you avoid the issue with your unsaved friends or your co-workers or family members in order to avoid subtle Christian persecution? I mean, really, seriously, this is just one subtle form. What about the greater issues of our day? The big stuff whether it's Halloween, abortion, or sin in your best friend's life, same-sex marriages, or whatever it is, remaining silent is often an attempt by us to escape the pressure. Martin Luther spoke prophetically and pointedly when he said these words, and I referred to this a couple of messages ago. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, no matter how boldly I may think I'm confessing Christ. Where the battle rages, he said, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. What is that? 
for you. If we refuse to stand for Christ in the little things in life, when our, only our feelings are in the balance, what in the world makes us think we will hold our Christian ground if our lives were at stake? We need to practice this word from Christ at all times because he's serious about it. Don't worry about how or what you'll say in the face of persecution. Trust God, Jesus says. You're covered. According to Jesus, you'll be given in that hour what you are to speak. You're going to be given the words perfectly suited to the need of the moment at the moment of the need. Don't worry about the message. Don't wonder about the means. Why? Because it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your Father who speaks through you. Those who suffer for Christ, John MacArthur said, will be defended by Christ. Those who suffer for Christ will be defended by Christ. That's a beautiful promise, isn't it? Some of the most memorable and profound statements and testimonies of the early church martyrs were uttered just seconds before they were put to death. And, and the one that most comes to mind with probably most of you and with me is Polycarp. You remember Polycarp? was a disciple of John the Apostle. He was martyred in 155 AD. When the authorities came to get him, to put him to death for teaching on Christ, this aged pastor invited them in as though they were his friends. He spoke with them. He ordered that they be served food and drink, and then he requested one thing of them, an hour to pray. The officers overhearing his prayers for two hours had second thoughts about whether they wanted to bring him to his execution. They began to think, why are we arresting this old man? An old man he was. Despite the bloodthirsty cries of the crowds for death, the proconsul sought to release him and pled with Polycarp, curse Christ and I'll release you. To which Polycarp replied these famous words, 86 years I have served him. He had never done me, has never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The proconsul appealed again. Then do this, old man. Just swear by the genius of the emperor and that'll be sufficient. The 86-year-old Polycarp said this. He said, if you imagine for one moment that I would do that, then I think you pretend that you don't know who I am. Hear it plainly. I am a Christian. Those are documented words. And Polycarp was martyred for his faith, but clearly was not without words as he faced his tormentors. You think he rehearsed those words ahead of time? Countless other accounts ranging from the first century to today fill the pages of Christian history with words profoundly uttered and fondly remembered because they came not only from the mouths of great men and women of faith, but from the spirit of the Father speaking through them. Thousands of Christians per year, you know, are still martyred for their faith worldwide. However, as the Voice of the Martyrs website explains, in short, persecution by its very nature defies being statistically analyzed with any degree of certitude. The fact is, despite our modern technology making today's world such a much smaller place, much of today's persecution still takes place in the remote areas of countries often cut off 
from or with restricted access to modern communications. So most modern suffer and die anonymously. Unknown, forgotten, their deaths unrecorded, except in heaven. The voice of the martyrs would rather focus on the people involved instead of numbers and statistics, putting faces on the figures and stories on the statistics. So I urge you to read some of Richard Wormbrandt's books, for example, if you've never heard of him. The most famous is entitled Tortured for Christ. Read a book like The Insanity of God by Nick Rickkin. Get acquainted with some organizations like Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors that testify to the way Christians respond to the persecution that they receive where the freedoms that we enjoy are not available. It will change you. It will change your outlook. It'll change your heart. It'll cause you to pray for them. It should change the way that we look at the American practice of Christianity because Jesus' words here will be clothed with, with a whole new significance. Beware the attacks, he says. Bank on God's assistance. But again, in verses 21 through 22 of Matthew 10, Jesus reminds us to be prepared for animosity. Be prepared. These are unbelievable words. Beginning in verse 21, brother will betray brother to death and a father is child. So if it were not bad enough that Jesus taught that Christians would receive hateful treatment from both religious and governmental institutions, what's left that God's created to be good? The family institution, right? Jesus reveals further that we will face opposition from family and society. Animosity with the family. These words of verse 21 are incredible to me. Nothing could be worse. On a different occasion, Jesus revealed that families would be torn apart as a result of the, of the gospel. And that's hard to accept, isn't it? You might get the impression that the gospel was incompatible with family life. Yet Jesus further explains this difficult truth later in this chapter when we cover, we will cover that in a later message in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36. But that brother could deliver a brother to death is a father his child and that children will kill their parents because of their stand for Christ. It's almost, it's just utterly impossible for us to believe and yet it is becoming increasingly clear that the animosity that the world holds against Christ and his followers leads to such events. And it happened not only during the early Roman persecutions of the second and third centuries, but it's happening now in certain sections of the globe as well. And we don't often see such extreme opposition in this country, yet many of us have felt the sting of ridicule in our own families, haven't we? And the chill of rejection from parents, relatives, friends, even spouses. So that may be subtle persecution, but it is nonetheless real. There are times when, as committed followers of Christ, we're confronted with one of the hardest choices of all, the choice between obedience to Christ and compliance with the ones we love. Hardest choice you'll ever face, probably. And on top of that, we're faced with the animosity of society. That's in verse 22. 
You'll be hated by all on account of my name. So when Jesus starts out, he says, religion will persecute you, the government will persecute you, your family will persecute you, and all of society will persecute you on account of my name. And that word that he uses there, hate, is a powerful word. And the tense in which it's used indicates that it will go on throughout the ages. It's a continuing thing. Jesus said, you'll literally be constantly hated by all on account of my name. Not by every individual or not by every single society, in general, but just society in general. You will be abhorred, you'll be ostracized, despised by the world. Why? Because of Jesus' name. It says it right there. Simply because of our identification with Christ. And to sum it all up, religion, government, family, society, they all react violently against believers ultimately because they cannot tolerate one thing, Jesus. They can't tolerate Jesus and his righteousness. It's not really about you and me. It's ultimately about Jesus. John 15 Verses 18 to 21 says this, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love its own, but you're not of the world. I chose you out of the world, and because of this, the world hates you. But remember the word that I said to you, a slave's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. That's the ultimate reason. And so how should we respond? We need to keep a spiritual perspective. Keep a spiritual perspective. Keep going. And don't lose heart. Luke 6 says, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. If you want to know how to respond to it, that's how you respond to it. Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, and 27 and 28. So keep a spiritual perspective, keep going, don't lose heart, bear up and be affirmed. And that's another whole message, but it's the one who endures to the end. It says in verse 22, that is saved. Now, does that mean we're saved by works? No, absolutely not. What Scripture teaches is that endurance proves our discipleship. Theologians have called that doctrine the perseverance of the saints. Simply stated, it means that continuance is the evidence of genuineness. Okay, And the reason's clear for that. As true disciples of Christ, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen? And Paul wrote to the Philippians, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So beware of the attacks, bank on God's assistance, be prepared for animosity, bear up and affirm your salvation, and finally, doesn't need any explanation, you'll be surprised at this one though, Verse 23, be smart and avoid trouble. Be smart and avoid trouble. 
Nowhere in Scripture are we told to seek persecution. It doesn't say that. There's no excuse for calling on the dogs, provoking animosity, or stirring up trouble. Even the early church taught that if there was possible escape from martyrdom without denying Christ, that should be used. Jesus clearly said that we are to flee when persecution threatens in verse 23. Paul practiced that pattern all throughout Acts. Go ahead and read it. You'll find out. Though he never shrunk away from the threats of his opponents or ever stopped preaching the gospel in the face of danger, neither did he needlessly provoke trouble. We're not to throw our lives away in a pointless act of martyrdom, but when and if it ever comes to the point of maintaining a true witness for Christ, we must not only speak, but be prepared to die if Christ should will it so. That's our mission, and those are the conditions until Christ comes. You ready to sign up for that one? If you're a Christian, too late, you already did. I mean, all of us really need to take a hard look at our personal witness for Christ, and we all do, myself included. Are we standing strong and firm where we should? Only you can answer that question. Or are we running scared, afraid of what people will say about us? What would someone like Paul say to us about our posture in this comfortable and complacent culture? Think about the words once spoken by an old preacher some years ago, and then I'll close. This, that'll be it. Vance Abner said this, he said, the modern church member all too often avoids persecution by taking the line of least resistance and living in a truce with this age. Then he said this, the early Christians wore scars, but we wear medals. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, hard message. It's a hard message that we looked at today, but it's still your word of truth, and it's still true of what goes on today in today's world. I pray, Lord God, that you'd spare us from this kind of persecution that you talked about. We don't want to have to go through that. But prepare us, Lord God, in case we do. I pray that you would make these words settle deeply in our minds and in our souls so that we wouldn't be surprised when we encounter animosity from our friends or relatives or society or government. Let's keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him went to the cross but despised the shame of it. And yet because of that, Lord, we have salvation. Help us again to follow you regardless of where you lead us. And may we trust in you and rely on you. For you said you'll never leave us or forsake us. What shall man do to me? I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.